What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real life stories from big hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. So today on True Power, I am delighted to be joined by Simon Belusov. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Cassie. Great to be here and ready to have a yarn with you. Brilliant. I'm really looking forward to a good old yarn with you, Simon. It's, <laughs> it's been a while. So let me start by introducing you. So Simon is a transformation leader with over 20 years experience in the digital and data space, driving change in the way teams work and the experiences delivered to customers. Simon brings really deep and significant experience to the many roles he has held across digital product, customer experience innovation, customer strategy, lifecycle marketing, and digital and data analytics transformation. Simon lives in Sydney, Australia, and we met many, many moons ago while working together at Bupa. So Simon, what else do you think is important to mention in terms of who you are and the work you do in the world? Thanks, Cassie. I think um, some of the things that, let's call it, have framed who I am and how I go about my work, I think um, first thing is I'm a son of migrants. So I've got that energy of restarting from the urgency of losing everything mm. when you move to a new land. Um, and really part of that, probably more from my mum, but also with my dad, is around seeking opportunity, equity, how you get into the system, or how do you change the current system so you fit in? Um, my parents ran a small business for 40 plus years. I've got kind of those values. I've also um, grew up in a country town in Queensland. So those things around hard work, word is your bond. So say what you do, do what you say, community, support others, see and engage with everyone. And of course, there's nowhere to hide in a small country town. So um, your positives and negatives are on display for everybody. Um, so those kind of that's my upbringing. I, I guess some words of advice or things that stick in my mind. So from my dad, there was a piece around the person you need to live with is the person you see in the mirror. Um, from mum, it was really around we will support you in whatever you do, but you need to commit hundred percent into what you do. So there's a piece there around you know values, who I am and also committing in, investing in uh, kind of in everything I do. Um, right now I'm married with three boys. I think that's a, um, another interesting piece. And with children, you think of legacy. Mm. You think of what you leave for them and how you make the world a better place, which will be important when we, we get a bit further on. Um, then if you look at my, uh, I like to call eclectic, non-linear career, I've reinvented myself professionally multiple times. I think I did a quick look and it's probably around five times if you actually look through. Um, I often find myself playing a form of change agent role, but also kind of that COO, Chief Operating Officer, 2IC, Chief of Staff role to more visionary leaders or people who are seen to be more visionary. 
but probably less organised around delivery um, and less thinking about what they need to do for their teams. Um, and if you look through everything, I think there's a common theme of, in my life around how do we make things better? How do we make the experience better? How do we improve? Um, and I like to say that's the engineer in me who wants to be a builder. I love that. I love the description of eclectic non-linear career path, which I think is the case for so many of us, right? Where did your parents immigrate from, Simon? Um, so Russian migrants on both sides. Dad was actually born in Australia, um, but his parents were Russian. Okay. They came from Siberia. And then mum was in uh, what is today Manchuria in northern China, but at the time was under Russian control. Um, and she was part of the great, uh, let's call it, clean out of foreigners by Mao in 1958. Wow. So that's when she came to Australia. Wow. I couldn't quite pick it from Belusov. I wasn't making some guesses, but I didn't want to guess. So thank you for explaining that. So, Simon, you know, the theme of the podcast is really to normalise how tricky it is to stay true to ourselves, how tricky authentic leadership is, um, and really giving, I suppose, stories and insights that might help others to um, keep coming back to who they really are, even when they find themselves way, way off course. So would you be willing to share with us a story or some stories about some times in your career when you realised that, or in your life, when you realised that you were not being true to yourself? Yes, I am, Cassie. I've got um, three, I like to call professional stories or moments that are relevant here. Um, they're not quite a beginning, middle and end, but they're, they're just interesting kind of stories path from my early career and then through the kind of the mid partish of my professional career. So um, I'm happy to share those. I'll get into them. I, I think before I start, like I've, I've got a view now that I'll spend my lifetime working ever deeper with myself, understanding who I am, what I'm here for. Um, and I've got to a stage now where um, I'm okay with that. So, and there's another part around, um, I'd like to say my movie is still playing out until my final scene. And I resonate with a phrase, you know, I kind of connect to, which is better than before, more to do. So moving forward as a human being, as a person, but understanding that um, there's, there's always other things or more to kind of work on and understand. Really, it's around understanding and awareness. So, so on to story one. So story one... Um, uh, Mid-20s, I was learning or I was brought, I got a role to be a, basically an auditor at Arthur Anderson when Arthur Anderson existed as a professional services organisation. So one of the big five uh, accounting firms at the time. So uh, really excited. So I kind of, I started, I dressed as an accountant. I worked the hours. I did what you do for the organisation um, you know what, in three years, I was burnt out. And, you know, I effectively had a midlife crisis in my 20s. Um, and when I kind of digested that, because it didn't happen kind of suddenly or anything like that, there was just this buildup of what was happening and, and why was I comfortable. And, and um, it took me a while post um because I went and did 
accounting contracts in London. And that's how I got my, let's call it my mojo back. But the point was I was being asked to follow someone else's rigid plan. Um, in that construct, it was do your time as an apprentice and in 10 to 15 years, you may be let into the club of partnership. Oh, that's a long time. <laughs> that's how it worked. And, you know, yeah. I couldn't influence this in any significant way. Mm. Um, and so, and there was a way, you know, that each of the firms have a slightly different way about how they go about that, but there was a hierarchical structure. It was, it was, it, it was just very structured and too structured for me. Um, and I had to compromise kind of parts of me around freedom and improvement and, um, you know, um, bringing things up and, and change. And, that, and that's kind of, let's call it, you can see an innovation and improvement kind of theme in my background. And Arthur Anderson, um, like I would say, almost all the professional services firms, that's not their business model. So I didn't fit. It didn't work for me. Um, and I realised that after. And it was kind of, it just, I became a grumpy, kind of tired, burnt out individual. Mm. Um, and I had to go to, to get back to myself. Now, what's really interesting is um, it didn't work for me, but it did work for two people in my cohort. So they've been with what is now that that practice was um, kind of has now become part of the Ernst & Young EY. So they've been there for nearly 30 years. Wow. Mm. So it didn't work for me, mm. work for them. They could accommodate it. And, and, and they did it. So, uh, and they've been partners for probably mm, approaching 15 years. So, um, but from that part, I'd also been tempted. So professional services, because of my background, uh, it, it, a lot of innovation transformation, from time to time, different firms have offered me roles and I've entered into conversations. So let's call it, I've been tempted multiple times. Um, but then I've always asked myself, no matter how the kind of let's call it the professional opportunities that might be associated with this, that or the remuneration, um, has is that firm different enough in terms of culture and approach for me to join it? Um, I want to ask enough questions and, and do my do my due diligence. It's a no. So then I politely say thanks, but no thanks, um, which. Um, at one level is a challenge because these are prestigious name brand, ego supporting organisations. They bring a lot of uh, kudos and credit. Um, but for me, that's not enough because of what I went through. It, it's, it's not enough to, if you like, have those elements uh, without being fulfilled as kind of who I am and doing that in a sustainable way. So that's story one or moment one. Love it. Keep going. <laughs> so my, my second one kind of after that was um, with 3Mobile Australia. So 3 was a telecommunications company, mobile service provider. It was a startup. I joined actually before it came to market globally because uh, they did multiple country launches um, and before the brand was publicly announced. So let's call it a big uh, corporate-backed startup. Um, 
my role there became basically digital content product marketing manager. So I ran music and ringtones and sport, cricket TV, streaming, so content verticals. Um, a combination of product development, but also operational management. Um, and I owned kind of marketing proposition or the role itself with those marketing proposition and pricing. So, you know, great time, uh, launch the business. Um, we're doing good business and music ringtones. You know, we're growing, everything's good. Um, and three remains kind of in my career, kind of a professional career time. I, I was there for eight years. It's the longest kind of single stretch with one organisation. Um, and it was around some of the best people and best times professionally in my life. Um, and across, so not, not only just in one group, if you like, or one team, but across the organisation, um, for me, really smart people, really good to engage, um, got a lot done. Um, during my time there, um, you know, probably around the six, I think, seven-year mark, I was fortunate to go on a nine-month secondment to the UK with the global part of the three um, mobile business. Um, then what was interesting, I came back and something had changed. So, and I couldn't work it out for around 12 months. And you'll ask me, well, what do you mean? My sense of the organisation was different. The behaviours were different. The condoned or accepted behaviours were different. There was something had happened around, it was more about what you said than not what you did. That somewhere along the way, there was more kind of, it was, it's this way or the highway, it's executive make, executives make the, do the thinking, make the calls. Um, to an extent, it become more siloed or divisive between the groups. Um, what was really kind of strange for me is that the people were generally the same. So I couldn't, like I can, about two months after I'd returned from the UK, I was kind of, I remember sitting going, what's, what is, what, I don't feel, I was, I was thinking it's because I enjoyed my time in the UK so much. And it was a version of, if you like, homesickness or longing for that role. Um, but um, like I said, I was really confused for a while because, because the people were basically the same. Um, but one of my things is I like to think and ponder and kind of, you know, do my thinking and have my thinking and look at things and, and grow my awareness. Um, and while I was away in the UK, the CEO and CFO of 3Mobile Australia had gone on to become the CEO and CFO of 3Mobile UK. And another individual in the leadership team became the new CEO. And what... I kind of worked through in the end was that in six months, he had changed the culture. In my opinion, it was a less welcoming and a less um, supporting culture uh, than when I went to the UK, but he managed to do that in six months. And so one of the learnings there was you change the leader, you change the culture. Um, and you know the play out of that was within another 12 months 
um, you know, I resigned and left for another role. But it was it it was um, it was quite unsettling because it was the same people, but different behaviours in such a short time frame. Mm. So fascinating when that happens, isn't it? Mm. It is. It is because he had been on the leadership team that had been supportive of the behaviours and the culture and the values, whatever you want to call that. He had been a, let's call it, a supporter and an endorsee of the prior regime. But for then, for me, to then, for him to then change when he was in the chair, it was almost like he was just a false supporter to an extent. And he was never truly aligned. Again, mm. my opinion, mm. how I saw kind of what played out. But yeah, a very, very interesting kind of uh, moment in my professional life. So. Now, are you ready to go on to moment three then? I'm ready. Or moment That's three, it. ready That's to third. go. The third moment. These are great. Um, and I should say some of it, although I'm giving enterprise or big company organisation examples here, um, I have been in a number of startups, um, no home runs. So after 18 months, two years, for different reasons, um, you know, they've imploded and flatlined and, businesses have been closed down um so i also have that lens you know for for those who are listening to this um i don't only speak with the lens of um big enterprise organizations um like i've seen the small end of town all the way through to the big end of town um and because they're all organizations are inherently people constructs you see similarities in the behaviors um so Moment three um, was after, again, three mobile. Um, uh, at the time, I led a digital transformation in the wagering business for Tabcorp. Um, so Australia's largest wagering business then, and it still is. Um, so was there for around two years, worked with an IT colleague to build a new team. So operating model change, um, we had the benefit of being able to recruit. So it's a greenfield. So we recruited mostly new people to the organization. So it could set culture and set ways of working. Um, uh, what I would call tier one agile ways of working. Um, so not the lower extent that many organizations implement, but I'll, I like to call great agile, truly great, real agile. Um, embedding a lot of customer uh, involvement and experience in the kind of design process of the product, um, great output, great outcomes. So to all extents going well. Um, and I reported into a senior EGM. So he was a member of the leadership team, support, um, reported into the CEO at the time. So um, going well, um, everything looking fantastic. Um, look, it, what was interesting is unbeknownst to me, a peer in the marketing team was effectively undermining me. So she was going around and um, effectively saying um, should be being done. What I was doing was not the way to do it. I should be doing it this way. 
you should be giving the budget to me, all these kinds of things. Um, but she never said it to my face. And she never had an, up, an upfront conversation with me on that. Um, and so she must have been going around the business doing this. Um, and no one in my LT or my EGM actually raised this with me. So I found out about it through another party, but it was kind of phase one around um, they, it, it must have been raised somewhere along the line and yet no one on that LT um, kind of raised it for me. Now, um, it's a big enterprise, so, it's, you know, on a regular basis, reorganisations come up um, and tap called reorganised. Uh, or there was a reorg coming up in a couple of days kind of before the date um, where the changes would be announced. Um, I suggested a version of a last supper dinner with the LT. So we did it. Um, and, you know, over my professional career in particular, but also my life career, you I've grown comfortable with there are moments where you understand what's going to happen, if you like. It's a version of you've seen this movie before, um, ahead of time. You don't have the script, but you know the script. Um, so come the day of the reorg announcement, um, I had a calm sense that my role would be made redundant. Notwithstanding what I had enabled in the team and, and where the team, the digital transformation team was going, I just had a sense, um, a calmness, calmness really, that I would be made redundant. So um, on that day, I made sure, and I'm sure you'll laugh, kind of the things I was bringing into the office, I made sure they could fit into like a bag, a small, like a like a plastic bag that I carried in. Um, and then uh, and then the process at the time was you would be basically, because uh, I had a GM kind of role, or that level, you'd be called into essentially the room and you'd be delivered the news by um, the EGM I was reporting to and they would have a HR person. So um, I went in there, um, he delivered the news. Um, I was calm because I it just validated what I had been feeling. And then straight after that, it was... Um, you go down to separate rooms so you don't go back to the team and then you have a choice whether to stay or go and it's like well i'm going to go because why would i stay around um one of my team brought down my bag of stuff um uh and i went through the redundancy process and and temple had a very generous redundancy package um and access to resources things like that um uh, and the actual package in terms of dollars was also very generous, so I can't fault them on that. Um, but it, what was also interesting is um, none of my XLT reached out to me, and I'd been working for them for two years, um, and it was almost like I'd been excommunicated. Mm. So because I was no longer kind of part of the organisation, um, I... I I, I didn't have any relevance or importance to anybody. Um, and I'd always had a sense with TAPCOL around um, there were elements around some of the leadership behaviours around fear and greed. So 
So people were fearful of, too many people were fearful of losing their roles because of the remuneration that was associated with them. And that was known by some of the leaders. So they would use that lever to get things done, to get certain results. Um, So, um, and based on kind of this, this, this was kind of later in my professional career um, and my earlier experiences, you know, there was a comment around, well, I was thinking in my head, well, should I fight this? How, how could I fight this? What could I do earlier on in the piece? Um, And first of all, it was like, I'll do my, you know, I'll do my work to my values and I will be authentic and we're getting the outcomes. So at one level, that should be enough. Of course, it's never enough um, at certain levels within organisations. But the other one is I just realised it was a combination uh, in that environment of systems and processes and the people in terms of the leadership roles. So was I willing to fight this on an ongoing basis? Mm. And I just wasn't. Mm. So it would just keep repeating. So although the kind of the reorg, um, if you like, crystallised kind of things in one big moment. That was actually just a, um, it was just a signal of what was the ongoing culture and would become an ongoing. And again, I just didn't, I didn't want to have the energy. I didn't want to use, if you like, my energy around not being myself. And basically, um, you know, having to fight all these internal uh, competitive battles instead of doing things for the customers, stakeholders, shareholders, however you want to uh, frame it, you end up spending a lot of time um, effectively defending yourself, attacking others. Mm. And um, that just doesn't work for me. So it's not who you really are, right? No, no, no. Um, and, you know, particularly like in Tabcorp, I realized, you know, you can. There was this mismatch. There was a there was a mismatch, and um, you know that they they could have recruited better for one of. I could have done my due diligence on the inbound better, um, but also at, at times I admire an organisation. Um, I'll give an investment. Some in some institutions in in financial markets and investment banking. Um, you know, often they encourage a version of a pit bull sales type behavior. Um, But they actively do that. They actively recruit for people who have that. And they actively, no matter how good your qualifications are, if they know that you're not that, you don't get recruited into the organizations. So for that, they're actively matching. Now, we could talk about how appropriate that behavior generally is but effectively they've lined up a match between um, people's authentic selves and the type of organizational behavior they want yeah or parts i mean i would say at our core we are connected being so these behaviors around you know being ultra competitive dog eat hmm. dog every man for himself I would argue <laughs> is not congruent with our true nature, but are congruent with protective parts of ourselves that we mm. develop over our careers. Mm. Mm. So, um, 
versus a kind of, you know, other organisations, if you just recruit who's available and a version of that and not really look at what your cultural match is, you can get the kind of, you just get this blended mismatch, right? And it's often hard to determine what is the cultural kind of core or behavioural core because it's kind of just been kind of all kind of put together in a, in a mishmash kind of way. So um, so that's my, that, that's some kind of, some key moments kind of professionally. Um, I think there's a part around, so if you said to me, well, did you have any learnings or are there any kind of nuggets? Um, I think I know now I'm more than my job and my professional work and the role I play in my career. Um, and I've seen people who are so, their ego and everything is so connected into the role that um, if they are no longer in that role, they're incredibly lost. Um, so, you know, somewhere along the line, I saw enough examples of what happens if you allow your professional work to become your whole life to go that, again, I'm more than that. And that also helps me with understanding, do I fit in the organisation? What are the cultural things that I want in terms of a match? Because it, uh, you know, I understand more that, um, you know, the, the role that work will play in my life and that it's not the dominant piece in there. Um, I think over time you get a, a better understanding of the reality of, you know, who you are where you are, um, kind of often I see hubris get in the way, hubris and ego and, and all these kinds of things. Um, and, and I kind of have a saying that there's, there's not everybody can be good to great. So if you look at all the organisational metrics and everything, um, it's almost like everybody is in the top quartile, mm. however they cut the data, which they can't really be because that's impossible. <laughs> so there's a, there's a part around... Um, too many organisations believe in they're good to great when they're when they're ordinary to average. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, and I think another one is around kind of getting to a point where you understand that organisations can be commercially successful, but a terrible place to work in. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and that story never kind of gets sold I think from a kind of an an outside perspective you know shareholder returns or profitability or number of customers or all these kinds of things is often the the kind of the halo or the veneer that's sold around organizations Um, and it's only when you personally experience it or kind of friends of yours or you see a lot you realize well you know and you realise what the reality is and it can be a terrible place to work. And then, you, you like for me, at times it's been to, um, perversely, I, ever th- I thought that to be commercially successful, particularly over the long run, you had to be a good place to work in. But then it's kind of like uh, I had these examples where that's it's pretty not the case. Um, so I think that's an interesting one to remember that if you... Um, look for a role in a commercially successful organisation, that by, that that in itself is no kind of guarantee of the environment, the culture, the behaviours internally being any better than any other organisation. 
Absolutely. I mean, and having, you know, coached and met so many people in these high growth, um, you know, super successful companies, the, the challenge is that, you know, you'll be told if you can't cut it, there's 20 people who'll crawl over broken glass to get your job. Right. Mm. And so <laughs> these companies can almost become like a meat grinder for fresh talent because there's so many people who who would really sacrifice so many aspects of self, their personal mm. lives in order to be part of these organizations that, that it can be so alluring, but um, but absolutely that's congruent with my experience that just because an organization is high growth or um, successful from a commercial perspective doesn't necessarily um, translate to being a great place to work. Mm. Mm. So, um, but they don't teach you that at school, right? They don't teach you. They don't. They don't say that early on. Um, no. You know, here's one of the things that you should kind of be thinking about or be be aware of mm. um, when you're that. You know that you that newbie. I remember back to my newbie kind of early part of my career and um, kind of, you know, th that's potentially some something that would have been interesting to know early on. And it's not that you wouldn't, again, it's about being informed and thinking through kind of what you're, look, what you're really doing, what you're trading away. Um, yes. Are you really comfortable with that reality? Is it really good for you from a sustainable, ongoing perspective? Um, it, it, it's actually, it's all those kind of the reality of that, not the, mm -hmm. you know, not the first six months where you're in the halo period. Um, but then at the three-year mark, you realise, oh, my God, what's, I can't do this anymore. Right. And so that was probably what, what I wanted just to ask a little bit more about, Simon, yeah. because I think, you're obviously a leader who is deeply reflective and you know I love what you said at the beginning that you're going to spend your lifetime kind of delving ever deeper into yourself mm. to understand who you really are and what what are the environments that are going to really activate and amplify mm. your unique gifts and what are the environmental factors that are in some way incongruent with with who you are which is you know an ongoing process of not only self-inquiry, but also kind of eyes wide open um, understanding of those forces at play around us, which are often those invisible forces at play, those mm. unspoken ground rule, the, those politics that are quite hard sometimes to even to put into language. Um, and so when we think about these three fabulous stories, I mean, you, you shared at the Arthur Anderson story, the first story you shared that, you had this awareness that the absence of freedom and your capacity to change and innovate um, and that system's kind of requirement of you just to kind of fit the mould, so to speak, and that there was very little freedom or innovation in that role. That's, that Was that the bit that was just clearly incongruent with that innovative um, change maker aspect of you in that yes, role? Yes, for me it was. Mm. It was the rigidity and also, if you like, the fixed timeline Ah, uh, yeah, 15 years. It was 10 to 15 years. Yeah, yes. that's a long six timeline. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and it was just that was the process and that was ingrained in the in the organisation. Mm. So, um, yeah, very rigid, yeah. Um, and that, that construct and 
you know, coming down to, I guess, my interpretation feeling around you have to act a certain way, dress a certain way, be a mm. certain way, um, uh, not only internally within the firm but to clients um, as you were in the field doing the work um, and with little kind of variation, at least from what I could see. Yeah. Um, Which to your point is some people will thrive in that environment depending yes. on how we're wired. I mean, that for someone is like heaven, right? but for people Correct. like you and I is hell. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Uh, um, yeah. You know, because, it, because some people it's the comfort in knowing the process. And it's essentially yeah. the similarity all the way through, right? Is that every day it'll be some version of exactly this. Predictability, yeah. And, yeah, for some, yeah, that, that's important, right? So then when we think about the three mobile example where you mm. had this big insight that a change of leader can change a culture within a matter of months, which is certainly mm. something I've observed time and time again in my corporate career, um, you know, and that was the environment where, you know, it seemed incongruent with that life philosophy you shared at the beginning that you got from your parents, say what you mean and mean what you say. And yet there was a lack of honesty and transparency, I sense, even amongst your, with your peers, which mm. I imagine kind of must, if I put myself in that situation where you know that your peers are withholding really important information that really it would have been very helpful for you to know about the white anting of your colleague, but yet mm. they withheld that information, you know, that sort of thing would certainly eat away at me. You know, how, how do you describe the incongruence in that situation? Um, that people at times will compromise a lot. Um, and they'll compromise a lot um, to protect their own ego. Mm. And they will do things for positions of power or money um, or expectation um, that is disappointing um, but surprising. Mm. And so so some of the trade-offs, that's what I would say. So, so people were willing to, and and it wasn't. Um, I'm I'm not naive to think I'm a I'm a one off. So these are patterns of behaviour, right? These are patterns over time. Mm. Um, but that perversely, they that all, those things are more important than kind of um, you know potentially big now they could be authentic this is the whole thing so i'll give my experience that, that might be their authentic behavior but i would kind of from a human perspective to exhibit that to another human being you, you kind of go well it, you can't quite it, it, that that is a little bit too extreme to believe that is your day-to-day -day authentic behavior um and i'm sure if i saw you outside of a work environment you would be a different person um, but you're willing to carry the burden of the mask mm -hmm. and, and, and actually perform this role day in, day out in a professional environment. And, um, but, yeah, it, it's, uh, like I said, for, for, for an ego and the power or the position or the money, um, unfortunately I'm constantly amazed at what people will trade off mm, to do that. 
the yes. fear to your point, the fear of when we identify, our, when we attach our self-worth to these big fancy job titles, there's so much fear if we can't be this C-suite executive, if we, if we can't, um, you know, play these roles adequately to survive the politics and mm. then who the heck are we, right? And so certainly the, the model that underpins my work, internal family systems therapy, would say that at our core, we are all connected, good, compassionate, playful, caring beings. But we mm. develop these parts of ourselves, protective parts, that show up in ways that that um, are incongruent with our true nature in order to survive, in order to feel safe, to protect ourselves, to do what we feel we need to do in order to feel like we're enough and that we're safe in the world. Um, so, you know, certainly it's my belief, and I think this is informed by this understanding of human psychology, that, that these behaviours that we see, which you know, I would describe it, make leaders walking safety hazards, <laughs> knowing mm. what we now know about psychosocial hazards. The things that make us walking safety hazards as leaders are, are not congruent with who we really are at our core, but so many leaders have completely lost connection with who they really, really are, their true nature, which is precisely why I spent last five years writing two books about it, because I think <laughs> it's really problematic. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Like, um, I think... It's a version of, is this the best we can do as leaders in in professional organisations? Really? Is this the best we can do? Um, I certainly agree with your point. Like I frame it around, I think as humans, we can get distracted and confused as to who our authentic self is. And it can be yes. buried, you know, we can have such a level of distraction and confusion that we do lose sight for a point of time around who our authentic self is, but it's always there. It's, it's always, always there. And it will down. come out and it will come out. It will come out in different ways, but it does come out. So yeah. there's a part around discovering, you know, that the methods that work to get you back into balance because the longer you're distracted and confused, I think the more out of balance you are as an individual with your authentic self and, um, you know, the outcomes that you see, so poor health outcomes. So whether you call it stress, whether you call it um, relationship dysfunctionality, whatever you want to call it, there's a whole bunch of signals that come out um, when you're not being your authentic self. And it's, it's, it's this part around you just get distracted. I think distracted, confused by yeah. a whole bunch of things. You lose yourself. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's part of us as humans that, you know, we want to find ourselves you know, and, and and be comfortable and calm and content in who we are. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I have a I have another one around. You know, as individuals and leaders, it's around this challenging ourselves around that legacy we leave. And I, and I said earlier on around, you know, I've got children now, so you think of legacy. And, and and part of it, when I look to be my, as much as I can be when the opportunities present themselves or being a change agent, it's creating better work environments for those who follow. And for me, there's a level of, it's personal, right? So I, do I want our children, my children, to face some of the cultures that you and I have had to endure? And it's like, hang on. Not real. No, no. I don't. Why would that be a good outcome for for them, for me, for for society? What surely 
surely um, surely we can do better. And we can. We can do so much better. And it, and it starts with leaders who have found the courage to look within as you've constantly done through your career. And, you know, I completely agree that so many leaders are distracted and confused but we have a whole team of parts inside of ourselves whose job it is to confuse and distract us. You know, those parts of us after the after a hard day at work that tell us to drink two glasses of wine and to feel less or to overwork, overexercise, overeat, go online shopping for crap we don't need. These are the distractor parts. That's what I call them in, in my model, the distractor parts. There's a whole team in there. That's their job to distract and confuse us. Um, and so it does take real courage, I think, to look within. And um, for so many leaders, it feels like opening a can of worms, right? Because because we're not educated about all these hardworking parts, the parts that protect, the parts that numb, the parts that distract, the parts that feel worthless. Because um, we're not educated about that, leaders don't do the inner work because they're petrified that some of these voices in their head reflect who they really are when, when that's never been the case. So I hope that there's leaders perhaps listening to this who can maybe uh, feel inspired, Simon, by your continued courage to do the inner work, to look within, to tease apart some of these behaviours that we've all been conditioned to, you know, to have over our corporate careers and ask the question, does this really, is this behaviour that I feel myself needing to to adopt to belong, and I'm using air quotes because it's false belonging, of course, in this organization, this behavior, way of feeling, or being really congruent with who I, with I really am at my core. And if not, how might I have the confidence to have an eclectic, non-linear career and, and to and to move on? Because <laughs> so many <laughs> leaders actually are petrified, terrified. Parts of them are terrified of moving on. So I hope that some listeners really draw inspiration from your deep self-reflection, all those absolute pearls of wisdom that you shared through your three stories. You know, any final um, thoughts that you might like to share, Simon, with any any of the listeners? I think time is the great limitation for each of us. So it's precious. So don't waste it. Um, make the most of it. You know, I talked earlier again about live your own values. Um, I think the other part is just remember, it, life, I don't think, is a zero-sum game. So if I win, you lose. It's every, if, you know, if everyone achieves to their max um, and are supported and we create these great work environment, professional environments in this context, we all win. Mm. We all live in a richer, more vibrant and creative society. So why wouldn't we want to do that? That's why I scratch my head at times. So I think for each of us is to, you know, understand the yourselves, your authentic selves, um, your human condition, um, and then realise that that's your individual work. But remember to support, grow, enable those around you, your ecosystem, if you like, um, because that makes it better for everyone. Yeah. And that feels like something we should be aiming for uh, and spending our time on. That is a worthy pursuit, my friend. I completely agree. Thank you so much, Simon, for all that you shared today, your vulnerability, your honesty, your authenticity. I know that so many people will benefit from those beautiful stories you shared. It's so lovely to reconnect. Thanks Likewise. Again. Thanks, Cassie. Great Thank yarn. You. 
By being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.